Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 304 with Alex Osterwalder of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Nathan Chan here, Sion Publisher of Founder Magazine. Hope you're doing okay. Hope you and your family are healthy and safe. And uh, yeah, wherever you are around the world, uh, we are thinking of you. We're doing everything we can to produce the best possible content to really help you start, grow, or scale your business, or perhaps create a new one and pivot or I don't like the word pivot anymore but you know what I mean guys we we really are trying to help you have we can we're putting out tons of content to serve you so let's talk about today's guest his name is Alex Osterwalder and uh, this is an awesome interview like this guy he created this con- um, this concept or this model um, called the business model canvas And it's really a process and framework around effectively how to create a business that solves a real problem in the marketplace and has an opportunity to succeed. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Alex because we haven't really talked about this kind of stuff in a while around how to come up with a business idea or a product idea. And it's a concept that I've been thinking about a lot now at Founder because we produce a lot of different products. And, you know, to be honest with you, some of those products, guys, they haven't worked out. They haven't done well. Um, you guys in the community aren't interested in them and we've had to shut them down. And, uh, you know, that's just a normal part of business. You have failures. But 
for us at Founder, we always want to win. We always want to produce great products that help and serve you guys. We want to produce winning products that, that people love and they want to buy. And uh, we're spending a lot of time trying to work that out. And I speak to Alex about that. How do you not just create your second or third product, but how do you create your first one that really does well? How do you create a business idea that just, it does so well that it just, selling is just effortless. People come to you. And uh, that's what me and Alex talk about at length. And we also talk about business models and how to build a business model that that is defensive, like it just has just an incredible incredible uh you know defensible moat uh especially during these times right it's all about sustainability how do you build a sustainable business and the ones that are going to last are the ones that yeah just just are really strong so i hope you enjoy this episode if you are enjoying these episodes please do take the time to leave us a review wherever you're listening itunes spotify stitcher doesn't matter Please leave a review. It helps us more than you can imagine. And then please also share this podcast with two friends. We spent a lot of money, a lot of time finding the most incredible founders in the world. I know that it is very, very hard to find awesome, awesome founders like the ones that we get on this podcast. We don't charge a cent, but all I ask is you share this podcast with two friends. It would help us amazingly. We're trying to build the largest online brand in the world that helps tens of millions of people every single week with our content. It's an audacious goal, I know, but if you can share it with two friends, it really helps. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? I don't know if I have a job. I have a hobby that I really like doing. <laughs> so, um you know, I started working on business models uh, when I was still at university. I did my doctoral dissertation on that. And then I just went on in this space, um, wrote a book, and uh, just always followed my passion. So I was always interested in businesses. How do you create businesses? So I wouldn't even call it a job. It's just I'm doing what I'm passionate about. Yeah, I love it. So um, how did you get into, like, business models? What What exactly kind of – piqued your interest there so when i finished uh, my studies in management information systems i had a professor Yves Pinier, who's now a long-term friend and co-author and he was looking for a doctoral student to work on the topic of business models that was in the year 2000 and the idea was that if we can model business models then we can make a, a software, you know, that, like a drawing table, a computer-aided design software for business people like architects have or engineers have. That was the origin. And that's how the whole thing kind of started. So I started in academia, but was always interested in practice and real companies. So then, uh, you know, I started applying this in the real world uh, pretty much later on. Yeah, I see. And, um, you know, a lot of people that uh, are in our audience – uh, they might be just about to start a business or they're looking to launch a business uh, or they've been doing it for a few years. That's that's the majority of our audience. So they're still kind of fine-tuning their model. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book, The Invincible Company. What What is the what is the premise of the book and, and what compelled you to write it? 
So, you know, when we start a new book, the first question we always ask is, does the world need another business book? There's so many out there and there's so many business books written. So we really push ourselves to, to see, you know, does it really make sense? And there are two topics, I think, for this particular audience. And what we really wanted to bring to the table is better business small thinking. So, you know, I think competing on products, technology and price alone is, is a battle you can only lose. So you might, yes, you have to come up with great products. Yes, you might want to come up with new technologies. But the real competitive advantage is now in a better business model. So we created, you know, part of the book is an entire library of business model patterns that help people, um, you know, compete on better business models, not just product price and technology. That's a big part of the book. That's the one that probably is most interesting for this audience. And then there's another um, part of the book which is more for companies that um, are established, could be small or large. You could start anywhere around, you know, 10, 30 people. How do you constantly reinvent yourself? You know, how do you stay fresh? Because once you have a business, you know, you're always at risk of disruption. So you can never kind of <laughs> fall asleep at the wheel. You really have to reinvent yourself because it's, it's harder than ever before to stay ahead, to stay in the game. So you need a great business model, but you also need to reinvent your business model all the time. So depending on your journey, this book offers you uh, different things. And the reason we, we, we actually wrote this book is because we've, saw, we've, we've seen some unsolved jobs in the market that people just really weren't really good at. Today, I still think most, most companies, they compete on products and technology, and that's not good enough because uh, you can't stay ahead. And then the other aspect is very few companies are good at reinventing themselves. Hmm, interesting. I've always come kind of from the school of thought that if you if you're in a market and you have the best possible product, um, generally that takes a care of of a lot of you know your traction. What what's your take there? I think that's how you know you might have been able to compete 10, 20 years ago. I would say today everybody expects great products, right? So nobody's buying crappy products anymore because you can, you know, you compare them on the internet. Like you can't survive with a mediocre product, right? So everybody's trying to compete with the very best products. Now, what really allows you to stay ahead is if you embed that great product in a superior business model. I'll give you an old example, but an interesting one, you know, the iPod. And everybody saw, you know, Steve Jobs coming up with this new technology and a new device. And when he pulled it out of his pocket at the launch, he said, well, it's the first time we can put thousand songs in a pocket. So everybody saw product innovation and the technology innovation. What most people don't know is that was actually a business model innovation. There was a very clear strategy that Steve Jobs had in mind in Apple, which was to get everybody to put thousand songs onto the iPod, into the iTunes software, so it would become very hard to switch. Because once you have your entire music library on a device in a software, guess what? It's hard to switch. So that would lock customers in, and they would come back to Apple for the next device they would buy. That's a business model strategy. This is called, you know, we call them gravity creators. They lock in customers. That is the superior aspect, you know, that they built around a uh, around a technology innovation, around a great product. It's not that they didn't have a great product, but the strategy was not just a product strategy. And they had to change a lot in the business model to even make that possible. They had to work with record companies, et cetera. So, you know, in particular, first-time founders, they don't see those business model aspects, so all they focus on is product. 
And that usually is the recipe nowadays for very short-lived success. You might be able to flip your company to a larger competitor that will acquire you. That's not bad. That's a strategy. But to outlive others, to outcompete the others, for that, you really need a superior business model. So great product for me is just a ticket to actually join the ride, but actually to stay on the ride and, and stay ahead of others, you need way more. I think it's just not good enough anymore. That, that used to be okay 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, interesting. So when you talk about like kind of a superior business model and the kind of companies that you're kind of referring to, you're talking about category kings that last for a very, very long time that is kind of a business of true worth, significance, uh, truly sustainable over many decades, right? Just for context. Well, if, if you get there, that's obviously what we call an invincible company. And not that many companies get there, I think, because many of them, A, don't understand business models, and B, they don't reinvent themselves. So there's, there are companies that had a great business model, but they didn't reinvent themselves. But to, to illustrate this you know, a bit more, take GoPro. Like GoPro you know, had, has great products and a great brand. But nothing in the business model protected them from competitors. There's no, there's nothing. There's no patents. There's no switching costs. There's no nothing. <laughs> so guess what? They got into trouble because, um, you know, they grew very quickly. They became very big. But then it was very hard to stay ahead because you're just competing on product, price, and brand. And that, for me, is you know, that's just not enough anymore. So if you know how to do this. You, it doesn't mean you need to become super large, but you can be, you know, a company makes 10, 20, 50, 100, 100 million dollars in revenues, and you can still be an invincible company at that size. Not everything needs to be large. I don't believe in, you know, scale at every at any price. It's just around superior business models. Even, you know, think of the business model of one. If you're a comedian and, you know, you have a, let's say you have a stand-up show, maybe even, you know, on YouTube or whatever, probably very popular now. You know, they constantly reinvent themselves. So they put 20% of their time of a show goes into a new material. And they might bomb with that material, but that's okay because they have 80% proven material. So even in a business model of one, the idea of reinventing yourself is extremely important. And if you can build a you know, superior business model around even the you know, uh, product of one, that's great. You you can sustain. So it's not just about large companies. It's about companies of all size. It's the mindset that counts. Reinventing yourself all the time, competing on superior business models. And the last one I didn't mention is transcending industry boundaries. I think, you know, companies that see themselves in one industry, oh, I'm in gaming. Oh, I'm in uh, in news. I'm in pharmaceuticals. I'm in banking. That's disappearing more and more because most successful players these days, they transcend industry boundaries. Just ask yourself, Apple, what industry are they in? Entertainment, hardware is how they make money, but you know, it's really a cross, right? So thinking about industries, it doesn't make sense anymore. It's about really what arena are you playing in and how can you build a great business model in that arena? That goes for business model of one, that goes for a small, medium-sized company, that goes for a large player. It's just different uh, scales. But it's the same thing. It's the same attitude, the same tools, the same thinking. Yeah, interesting. Um, so bringing it back kind of for people that are listening and watching and perhaps they're in a stage right now where they're kind of looking for a market to enter, looking for a yeah. product to start with, like 
what should people be doing? Like, because these thought, this, this thought process is very, um, you know, kind of long-term, right? I think the challenge of a lot of entrepreneurs in particular early stage or young entrepreneurs and young means, you know, first time, not necessarily young in age is they overvalue the idea and the vision and you just should get started, you know, to use Steve Blank's words, as he said, you know, get out of the building and start testing. So ideas are free. Ideas are everywhere. Opportunities are everywhere. The hard thing is to turn ideas into a value proposition that customers care about and a business model that can profitably scale. So it's all about shaping your idea quickly. And I suggest you use tools for that. It's great products. Again, not enough. You can, you can fail and go bankrupt with a wonderful product. But, you know, you can't make enough money for it. It costs more than, than, than you're in revenue. And then test it and adapt it all the time. So that attitude is super important. And again, you know, this, this field has been evolving very quickly. So just by, you know, listening to a couple of podcasts, nothing against podcasts, but, you know, listening to a couple of podcasts, going to a couple of workshops, is just not good enough anymore. This is now a real profession. And, you know, Steve Lang and Eric Reese and, uh, our team at Strategizer, we really pushed the boundaries today just saying, oh, I'm testing a little bit. That's not good enough anymore. You really need to get serious about this. This is like a, you know, a real job. The, the, the analogy would be, you know, the web in the early stages, everybody could make a web page. <laughs> now, you know, you're going to laugh if you say, oh, you know, I'm making web pages. Really? <laughs> now it's, it's about 10, 20 different jobs, right? UX design, uh, different types of uh, coders and you know, all, all different kinds of things. That's where we're moving towards in uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. We're getting very sophisticated. We can measure the reduction of risk and uncertainty. Now, that doesn't mean you need to start simple. You just go out and start testing. But you need to inform yourself, how is testing done today? What are the best practices? How does this work? How do you measure if I'm actually making progress from idea to business? So there are a couple of books out there that can help you with that. Hmm, I see. So so when it comes to business models, just go out there before you even worry about that and just start testing and try and validate your product first. And then once you've got no, 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 no. The reason I'm pushing back is, you know, is this uh, is this misconception in the lean startup movement where, you know, the process is called build, measure, learn. Guess what most people do, in particular engineers, when they hear build, measure, learn, they go and build something. So forget the build for a second. It's about testing your idea. So often, you know, let's take it step by step. First thing you want to ask yourself is, when you have an idea, you shape the business model. You need to do this from the beginning to shape it. And admit you'll be wrong. It doesn't matter. But just give it a shape, you know, customer segments you're targeting, yeah, the value business model canvas, pieces, yep. all of that. But very quickly, just spend an hour or two. That's it. And then you need to ask yourself, this is the fundamental thing you need to do first. What needs to be true for this idea to work? What are the underlying assumptions, the hypothesis? So you first ask yourself, what are the biggest hypotheses? Do customers have this problem? Do our customers willing to pay you know, X amount of money? What are the costs? Can I produce at this particular cost? Come up with all of the assumptions, all of them underlying your, your business idea, your business model. Then you prioritize. That's extremely important. You prioritize. And it's usually not a product assumption that is number one. It's often a desirability assumption. 
You know, do people have this particular job? It could also be a viability assumption. Are they willing to pay for this thing? You can test that without building anything. So never start with the product. It's actually very wrong because the product is what you have in mind. Your customers maybe don't care. The supply chain maybe doesn't work. So ask yourself, what are the most fundamental assumptions? Prioritize those. And then you ask yourself, what's the experiment I need to design? Oh, I could do customer discovery interviews. Oh, I could do this thing called card sort where I understand the most important pains of my customers, or I can understand what are they willing to pay for most. I can do Google ads to, to uh, test customer interest. Building usually comes a lot later. So really, I, I, I'm pushing back on this because it's one of the biggest mistakes that people think they need to build something to test. No, they don't. So the book we launched before, actually last fall, was called Testing Business Ideas. D David Bland was the lead author. And the big point we tried to make there is you don't need to build something. There's a whole library of experiments that you can do first that are a lot cheaper, a lot faster before you build anything. And the, the main thing there is just don't fall in love with your idea. Uh, don't try to build something because you think it's a great idea. Test, test, test. It's almost push yourself to to almost prove yourself wrong. And if you can't find enough evidence that you're wrong, you're probably right. <laughs> so, so that's the attitude you need um, to gather as much evidence as you can. And building is not always required. It actually comes up often much later. You can start with product brochures. That doesn't mean building anything. You just make a PDF with the performance of your product. You know, B2B, you could do that. Medical devices, you can do that. That's a much better approach than building anything. So speed of testing and learning, that's the essential thing you want to really focus on first. And then you, there is a moment where you need to build, but that's usually not at the beginning. Yeah, interesting. Um, so talk to me kind of around how do you know when you've kind of got that traction or like you said, you've, you've proved yourself wrong. Like what, what kind of, you know, holds your hypothesis true? Yeah, yeah. So... You know, I think when people start with this, and, and probably that's still a bit of a, of a, you know, at the early stages of a profession, people think there's this lightning moment where the path will open up and you see candles left and right of that path. That never happens, right? Entrepreneurship is this mix between uh, art and science. The art part is that you try to recognize the patterns. You try to see, you try to get a feel for it. And you, you test your vision constantly. The science part is that you test. But unfortunately, it's not just science, just like it's not just art. It's not the creative genius. And it's not just the scientist. So you're always in between. And you have to make bold bets based on, or some, some people call this taking a leap, based on um, you know, the evidence and how it shows up. But here's the thing. You actually need to run probably 20 to 30 experiments to start seeing those patterns. People think, oh, I'm going to build something, I'm going to test in the market, adapt it a little bit, and then I got it. No way. You need to run 20 to 30 different types of experiments to really understand your customer deeply, to really understand if you're able to create value for your customers, to really understand the price points and so. So that is, is, is the profession of testing today. And when you run 20 to 30 tests, you start to see the patterns, but it doesn't come from one experiment. It comes from 20 to 30. So then you start to see the patterns. You start to see the conflicting you know, data, the contradicting data, 
And then you do another experiments to, to go down one path or another. And the biggest thing, obviously, is that it's not a straightforward path. It's like you dive deep, you come up for air. You dive deep, you come up for air. Until, until you start being able to put the puzzle pieces together. If you ever did a big puzzle, it seems unsolvable at the beginning. But there's never this clear thing coming up. <laughs> there's always a struggle. But all of a sudden, it's, wow, I'm getting there. How, I didn't know how this happened, right? So it's the same kind of mystery when you put together a huge puzzle. There is no clear path. There is no clear moment where everything falls in place. It's a constant struggle, but all of a sudden you actually get there. Hey guys, I really hope you're feeling inspired from today's interview. The truth is there's never been a better time to build an e-commerce business. And the best part is you don't have to do it alone. And that's where Founder Plus comes in, which I'm really excited to share with you. If you're feeling stuck in your e-commerce business, lacking confidence to move forward, or really worrying about making costly mistakes, Founder Plus is here to support you. You get access to a customized learning pathway with proven frameworks from successful e-commerce founders for fast results, a supportive community, weekly live mentorship, exclusive savings on startup tools and 24-7 real human support. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash Founder Plus trial or click the link in our show notes to claim your trial. All right, now let's jump back in the show. Yeah, I see. So like this is like product development 101. Um, But what about sales? Like let's just say you put up a landing page, you've got a idea you put up a landing page you run ads to it you get a really low cost per click from the ad and then the opt-in is you know you're paying a dollar a lead and it's just super cheap and there must be interest and then you have 10 different landing pages and you can see what the which one hits a nerve and then like i think the problem is and and this is what we've seen in practice a lot is people don't really actually the the art part is is more <laughs> is more there than the science part. So when you are in deep natural sciences, which we're not talking about here, we're talking about social sciences, right? You actually know which variable that you know you're looking at. So often people would put up a landing page with twenty thousand things on there, and then they go and test with Google Ads that have you know five different things in the ad in terms of value proposition, pricing, etc. So you don't actually know what's working, right? <laughs> so if, let's take it the other way around. If you made your assumptions very clear and you say, okay, for this idea to work, I need the customer to have this particular problem. Then the only question is, what experiment will help me validate if customers have this problem or not? Once you know they have the problem, okay, now I can go to the next thing. Now I can start to do Google ads because I know they have the problem, at least those people maybe that I talk to, now you're starting to ask yourself, is this on a larger scale? Is the wording of my Google ad right? But you already, you've already proven that they have the problem, right? So you need to isolate some of the variables, which we call hypothesis, because you can't test 10,000 things at the same time. That's why you rarely should start. And yes, I think it's it's product management 101, but we see everybody screwing it up, right? They would come up with this product. They would put the product prototype in front of customers and ask, would you buy this? Like there's everything is wrong about that. Number one, you just frame the conversation around your idea. So very few customers are going to say, look, that thing sucks. I really don't care. 
They're going to be friendly and say, yeah, you know, and, but they won't tell you what is the fundamental job they're really struggling with. So first thing is you forget your prototype and you start to understand with the right testing methodologies, what are they struggling with most? Number one, you find evidence for that. So you do one at a time. So you can almost call it lazy, but I think it's not laziness. It's just people don't know better yet. They would put this whole product in front of people. And when, you, when I say whole product, what's the problem? There's 10,000 variables in that product. The shape, the color, the features, maybe the pricing. So when they say no, you don't know what they're saying no to. Maybe they were just pissed off about the color. Maybe it was the, the features. Maybe they liked the feature there that could have been huge potential. But So it's in the details. So I think... You know, product management, to a certain extent, is still in the early stages when it comes to really doing this, these things right. And the challenge is, first and foremost, very few product managers and entrepreneurs or innovators, I don't see them first asking what needs to be true for my idea to work. I don't see them prioritizing hypotheses, right? So sorry for sounding a little bit like a teacher, but it's to a certain extent, you know, on the one hand, a frustration, but on the other hand, I'm asking myself, what do I need to do better to get the you know, product managers and innovators and entrepreneurs to understand this better? So we write books, we do online courses, et cetera, because we want to elevate the profession. And I think slowly, slowly we're getting there. Things change radically over five, 10 years, right? Steve Blank has done a lot. We're trying to do a lot. And we only write new books when we think there's a need for that. That's why we wrote Testing Business Ideas. That's why we wrote The Invincible Company. But there is a little bit of frustration there because it's a bit, you know, they think people present things as a science, but they're not rigorous enough. But then others are too rigorous, and that's not good either, right? I mean, we're talking business here, not natural sciences. So there's this fine line between being really good at it and being an amateur. Yeah, no, this is great. Like, it's 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 cool to hear you just tell it straight, uh, because I think there's always this aversion to testing, and there's this <laughs> yeah. kind of, like, kind of, the fun part of coming up with an idea and the, the creation side yeah. and like the it's speaking to customers <laughs> side and the testing that's yeah. doesn't seem as fun as, as idealizing yeah. something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's hard work. Like let's, let's put that first. You know, if you look at early stage venture capital, only one out of 250 ideas, you know, is a, is an outlier is a breakthrough, right? Unicorn if you want. So, you know, most, most, Ideas fail. Six out of ten. Six out of ten, they don't even return uh, once they get early stage venture capital. They don't even return capital, which means, you know, 60% of the people listening to your podcast now, they're working on something nobody wants or a business model that doesn't work, right? And that's okay because you actually get better at this over time. So you do it again and again and again if you are, you know, if you have the stamina. So that's why a lot of people drop out. They do it once. I'm not made for this. Well, yes, you're probably not, because those who really are good at this, they've done it several times, and they actually like the suffering you know, to a certain extent. You need to be crazy to be an innovator entrepreneur, and you need, you need really persistence and grit that very few others have. So the fun part is the easy part, and that's usually, you know, there's this term wantrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> People who kind of go, they stick with the easy part and say, oh, if I just had the money, I'd launch it. And money's never the problem, right? And I'm not trying to make fun of people. It's just that we need to understand this is hard and it's hard work. And the few who make it big and we see on the cover of a magazine, 
You don't see the backstory. They went through a lot of hell. Like they went through suffering. And we need to tell that story because yeah, it's hard. I, I agree. But I think once you, you start to get it, it actually becomes fun, but it never gets easy. It's always hard work. So just because you did it once doesn't mean you're easily going to be able to do it twice. It remains hard work. The good news is you do it five times. You're not going to make the stupid mistakes the fifth time around. That's why you want to join a startup first when you're young to watch. And maybe, you know, statistics actually show the, the, the most successful entrepreneurs are after 40. I kind of like that <laughs> because I'm 46, right? So, but it's, it's true. The reason is that experience does matter. Not an experience in execution, in management, but in experience in a domain matter, you know, experience in doing this as an entrepreneur, testing, this doesn't come easy. So it's really, really hard work. Good news is it's starting to be a profession. We have the tools, you know, you can learn it. Um, some are better than others, but even if you're not great at it, you can actually learn it. But the biggest characteristic I think of entrepreneurs and innovators is they're okay with being humiliated day and night until they get it right. So the biggest thing that an entrepreneur can do is get up again and again and again, because you get punched in the guts all the time. <laughs> so it's hard. <laughs> the ideation part, the idea part, that's easy. Raising money even, that's the easy part. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier than actually figuring out what do customers care about and how can I create a business model around that that scales and is protectable. Yeah. So let's talk about the business model piece because um, it can get complicated, right? You can you can make you you can put a lot of bells and whistles and I've actually oh, yeah. fallen victim to that where you've got so many different uh, ways to kind yeah. of service a particular subset of market that you lose focus. What's yeah. your take there? I think it's, it's great. You know, what you're just saying is that's a big, big risk. You always want to keep it simple and ask yourself, you know, is that a, depending if you want to scale or not, is that a business model that I can scale or am I trying to make something too particular for five different markets, right? So you have to question your business model all the time, the limits of it, the strengths of it, the weaknesses of it, and you fix it all the time. You know, one example I like is, uh, really like is Netflix because everybody knows it now, but when they started out, they didn't immediately work on streaming, right? So we kind of tend to forget that, <laughs> but you know, when they started out, they had the vision of streaming in mind. But they started first with DVD delivery, you know, by post, <laughs> by mail, because they knew the infrastructure wasn't strong enough. So had this vision of where they wanted to go, but the steps they performed to get there were very different from their kind of destination. So what's usually pretty good is if you have a strong vision of where you want to be in 5, 10, 20 years, and you adapt the steps all the time, but you don't lose sight of the longer term vision. You just adapt the business model to get there and you focus on what can really work. You, you need to cut out um, the, the, the fat all the time of your idea because it's easy to actually get stuck with five different things. Usually when a company has five to 10 different revenue streams, it's because they haven't found the one revenue stream that can scale, right? So you can get stuck in doing too many things. I've been a victim of, you know, I love creating stuff. So guess what? I create stuff all the time. But then focusing on that scalable part 
and leaving everything on the side that's a that's a very that's a very strong skill that not everybody has which part of what i'm seeing could really scale and then leave everything else away this is a that's hard that's not that easy and that requires experience as well yeah that's interesting um that you say around the 5 to 10 revenue streams so you you believe if you're an early stage startup let's just say you're making sub in the range of 10 to 50 million per year annual revenue if you've got 10 to 15 revenue streams like one let's just say uh advertising another magazines another digital courses another affiliates if you if you had like 10 to 15 you would say that you haven't found the one scalable model Look, it's always a choice, right? If you're comfortable with that, that's fine. But the challenge is the more different moving pieces you have in a business model, you know, the more you're distracted because then you need people who are good at advertising in your team. You need good, you just mentioned magazines, you need another group of people who are good at that. And you know, what what we're trying to do at Strategizer goes in that direction. We have several different pillars of our business model, but we're a relatively small team, right? So we're doing several things. That's pulling us in different directions, but it's a deliberate choice because we believe those pillars, you know, online training, software, coaching, all of those are needed in the longer term. So that's a choice. As long as it's a deliberate choice, you know, that's okay. But if you have five different revenue streams and you don't think one could really kind of, you know, allow you to focus and those five, 10 things don't really fit together then you're probably not on the right track yet. But again, it's a question of choice. If you're comfortable with having, you know, some people like that. They like the diversity and they don't care about scaling or so. That's fine. It's always a choice. But you need to make informed choices when it comes to the design of your business model. And I think many people are getting really good at at product choices, you know, feature choices, et cetera. But they're not as good at business model choices. That is still a field where I think a lot of people can improve but again as long as it's an informed choice there's no right or wrong business model right there's no right size it's just you need to find something that works for you as an individual if you're a founder as a company you know when you're moving in a direction as long as it's a deliberate choice you're fine right that's i think that's important and you need to get to that as a founder some people they say i want to scale but they're not doing everything necessary to actually get to a scalable business model. That's, you know, schizophrenic. That's not very good. Others, you know, they, they want a tranquil, tranquilo life. You know, they want to relax and so, but they're working on a crazy scalable business model where you need to put 16 hours every day in. That doesn't work either, right? Again, there's not one that's right and one that's wrong. Just try to align the, the the business model you're focusing on and your objectives as an individual founding team or company. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess the reason I asked that question is just from my own personal experience with our company, right? Like from my experience, um, one way to scale is to bolt on other products. So if you have a customer base, right, a customer base that you are servicing and you know, you if you find other ways to service that customer base, you can rapidly increase revenue. Sure. I mean, you know, think of the uh, uh, retail market, you know, stores or supermarkets. That was, you know, the initial kind of idea that you're just saying. They just started adding categories, et cetera, or food companies. They start to add categories. 
that's okay. But that's one business model, right? So you're actually not more products doesn't mean you have more than one business model. If you're just more making one revenue and selling stream, or, many revenue streams though. Yeah, but no, it's the same revenue stream. You're making something and you're selling it, right? So mm. a different revenue stream for me is when it comes from a different customer segment and it's different in nature. One's is transactional sales. One is a subscription. Yeah. One is negotiated, you know, based on size or whatever. Those are different revenue streams. Different selling cycles as well. If you're just buying yeah. and selling or making and selling, it's the same revenue stream, right? So the whole idea is, a business model is not about the number of products. It's how you create, deliver, and capture value. If you create the, the um, um, value the same way, if you deliver value the same way, if you capture the value the same way, you have one business model. Right now, take one, take Amazon with e-commerce and Amazon Web Services. That's two fundamentally different business models with fundamentally different revenue streams. Now, what's interesting there is there is also a fundamental synergy between the two, which is the backbone, the infrastructure. So it can make sense, but it's a deliberate choice. And I tell you, the stock market hated them at the beginning because they said, you're crazy. You're branching out into B2B. It's not your business. You're in e-commerce, right? And they said, no, no, we're, we're actually in growth. <laughs> and, and, and they started to build a hugely profitable business in a completely different industry. Again, so industry analysis doesn't make sense because it's the same kind of basis with two very different business models, but you know, synergy between the two. So you need to, as a founder, understand, are you in the same business model? Are you starting to diversify your business model? And a big, another way to understand it is, do I require different uh, resources and activities? You know, if you're building software and selling software, that's one type of resource and activity. If you're starting now online courses all of a sudden, oops, you just added a completely new activity, which is, you know, content creation. And probably you're creating a new resource, which is online courses. Now, if that's a deliberate choice, it's fine, but you need to be aware. And that's, I think, for, for um, founders that are starting out. At the beginning, having five business models you're exploring is usually dangerous because you're going to die with all five. Because I talk if about focus, focus right? Them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all about focus. So that's back to the basics, right? The, all about focus. But I think, again, as long as it's a deliberate choice, if you think you can build two business models at once, that's okay. But that's tough. You just need to be very aware that that's tougher. And usually that doesn't really work. So back to focus, build one, then build a second one, or think Netflix. Have one kind of five, 10-year vision in mind while you're building your first one and you're always testing the second one, right? That's a very good strategy as well. Yeah, kind of uh, bullets versus cannonballs, right? <laughs> yeah, cannonballs, is, that's very wasteful. Let's put it that way. And you run out of cannonballs very quickly. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, no, I love um, Jim Collins' work as well. So awesome. So um Let's talk about like to you, what is the ultimate business model? Is it two-sided marketplace? Is it B2B SaaS? So I'm rubbing my eyes because <laughs> everybody wants the magic bullet. And I'll say the the magic bullet is there is no ideal and you know superior business model per se. What you need to build is this ability to design the right business model for the right opportunity at the right time. And that 
is a skill because you know you, if you just copy everybody else you know let's say the SaaS business model there is no SaaS business model per se because they all differ now do they have similar characteristics yeah they all have similar infrastructure they all you know sell subscription but guess what you know somebody started that and it was a disruption of the licensing model right so you could disrupt this SaaS business model as it is known today and, and come up with a completely different one. there are actually some people at at uh, SAP this is not the company's opinion but they say, you know, some of the leading thinkers there, they say subscriptions are the wrong thing for software because it should be pay-per-use, right? Just like we have, you know, maybe at Amazon Web Services. So, so you could today come up with a better business model. I think customers would actually be happy with pay-per-use. Maybe. I don't know. And maybe it's for some industries. So there is no one single business model. What you need to build is the skill to find the right one. And to do that... Just like as if you'd ask, what's the one right software for enterprise resource planning? There is no one right software. There will always be renewal. There will always be change because the problems change, et cetera. So we need to develop this ability to come up with new business models. That's the key skill. Um, you know, are there some that perform better? That's why we came up with business model patterns. So you were pointing in the right direction for sure. Right? You said platform model. Absolutely it's harder to disrupt platform models. So that's the business model patterns. Is that the truth? No, because you can see platform models that start to add products back into it, right? Or service business models that go back to sales or sales business models that go to service. So I just want to fight against this idea of a one true business model, but there are some that have better designs in certain instances. Let me give you an example. That was all very abstract, okay? <laughs> so iPod again. Let's go back to the early one. iPod, the iPod created switching costs and locked customers in because they put 1,000 songs onto the iPod. Well, guess what disrupted them? Spotify, right? <laughs> so even a great business model at one moment can get disrupted. Now then you're forced to reinvent yourself. So think of it more like patterns in software or patterns in architecture or patterns in design. Some patterns make more sense in one situation or another, but you know, there will always be you know, reinvention. There will always be new ways of doing things in, in software, in architecture, et cetera. So I think that inspiration, rather than searching for the best business model, just figure out based on your experimentation, what could keep me ahead of others but don't focus on competition. Focus on, you know, business model patterns and customer jobs, pains, and gains. So that was a lot of rambling, but because I feel very strongly about there is no right business model. What I do feel strongly about is there are patterns, like the ones you mentioned, that can help differentiate for a certain amount of time. But if everybody does that, you're probably going to get disrupted and have to come up with something else, right? Mm. Yeah, look, the reason I asked that question is because, like, um, I guess, you know, I can be a little bit selfish and ask uh, um, from my own experiences, right? And I look at our company <laughs> yeah. founder and we've got an yeah. incredible community and I think of, you know, our, our community and our brand that, that we can serve yeah. as founders and entrepreneurs in many ways. Yeah. We could create yeah. a two-sided mentorship marketplace. We already have Absolutely, magazines. Yeah. We already have yeah. online courses. Um you know, I, I'd like more recurring revenue. So, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I want yeah. some more sustainability yeah. and predictability. So, it's like, okay, what can we do there? And then I think, hmm, okay, well, then I want to get into SaaS one day too. And it's just like all these different things. And I like, it's fun to play with all these different models. And then yeah. that's where I said, 
you know, <laughs> from past experience, I just we just did too many things and it was crazy. Yeah. And then I stripped it all back. And then I'm always thinking like, you know, I, I was just curious to get your take because from my yeah. experience, um, when it comes to kind of the ultimate business model, I personally believe it's got to be a some sort of uh, value delivered to a customer where there is strong lock-in and it causes serious pain if you took that away with some sort of recurring revenue um, in any way, shape, or form. I, I just think that that is, from my experience, where it's at. So, so I'd put that as one, definitely as one pattern that makes a lot of sense. But there will always be industries where you can't do that or where it doesn't make sense, right? So the way I like to look at it is, you know, think of these different patterns. Just That's why we created a pattern library. And then depending on the market situation you're facing, you come up with a new technology or you're in a particular space, right? Founders. Ask yourself, what does the market say and what are the assets you already have? You know, make a business model canvas, assess your strengths and weaknesses and start from there. And then can you design switching costs into that? Yeah, could be. But maybe you can't, right? Or maybe you can in the next five years, but you can keep that in mind in 10 years. So I like seeing having those options in mind all the time to build a stronger and stronger business model. So take away the weight of what's the best business model and just try to improve every day. Every day you try to improve your business model a little bit, knowing what are the risks of some business models. When switching costs are low, the risk is your customers are going to leave, Okay. So you know that. So you work again, you know, you work around that and you just keep it in mind. So I like this path of just always, you know, try to get better every day. And as long as you do that, as long as you have the philosophy of the, 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 the um, Jeb Bezos philosophy, focus on customers while, while everybody else is focusing on competitors, <laughs> you'll be just fine, right? Um, customer focus plus business model focus usually is the best recipe. Doesn't matter what others are doing. Just you know, look at what you have, start from there, um, you know, assess how you can build on top. So we have this business model library also that we call shift patterns. Take a business model that you have and improve that one, right? Can be from niche to mass, can be from mass to niche, mass market to niche. My favorite one is still, and this is kind of to show you that there is no one direction. Think of a business model that went from high tech to low tech and disrupted an entire industry with inferior technology. What comes to mind? Oh, got no idea. Sorry. <laughs> and maybe you even played with it. Nintendo Wii. Have you ever played with a Nintendo Wii? Yep. Well, guess what? When they launched the Nintendo Wii, it was an inferior technological platform. What did they do right? They had a different value proposition and a different business model. So they targeted casual gamers with fun products, right? Motion control. Motion control was an off-the-shelf technology. What does that mean? They could slash their technology costs enormously. So they created more value for an underserved market with less costs. Guess what that means? That means an insanely profitable business model. While everybody else was, was competing on subsidizing their platforms, they actually disrupted the market by making money from each platform, from each console they sold. Right? So there is no one direction. Nobody thinks of inferior technology as superior business model. That's exactly what, uh, what Nintendo did with the Wii. And Nintendo, turns out, they have a long, have a, a mixed kind of history of playing high-tech and playing low-tech. So they always navigate between the two. 
usually when they go to low tech is when they run out of money to do high tech, right? <laughs> so, but they, they've, they've disrupted markets with inferior technology, but superior value propositions and business models. So that's why I don't like dogma, because I think it usually leads you into the direction that everybody is going. And I like this whole idea of use the creativity to design better business models at a certain moment in time. Take a business model from one industry, bring it into yours, right? That's, that's creativity. And then with the scientific part, with testing, you figure out if that could work. Because what looks great on paper, you know, oh, great, switching costs, makes sense. But nobody's coming and they actually rebel against your switching costs. Well, it's not going to work. So you have to adapt it, right? So I really believe in this idea of uh, art and science and not this dogma of going into one direction only. Yeah, you make a really good point on switching costs. Like, you know, I was I was talking to one of my friends and he's really strong on the on the B2B sales standpoint, but his product could sell well on the B uh, business to B2C space in the B2C space, but it's not his strength. So he just continues to double down because That's great. Yeah, yeah. to to yeah. understand going business yeah. to consumer is totally different and yes. it's very very it's difficult. And that's exactly the, the, the point of focus, right? Could you diversify and go to another market? For sure. But again, B2C requires different marketing skills, et cetera. So you're, you're actually diversifying the business model, not just the customer segments. And that's what, uh, you know, usually you painfully learn. <laughs> you never do it a second time. But then at one point, it might be a very smart choice to say, I'm going from, you know, B2C, take Amazon, into B2B with Amazon Web Services. Again, that's a large player, but you know the same thing can happen at a very small scale. But as long as it's informed choices, you know, um, deliberate informed choices, you know what you're getting into, you can manage it. I think many people get into these things without knowing what they're getting into. Oh, new market, new revenues, B2C, great. <laughs> well, think it through to somebody who's, who's done it. I like the best thing is always to talk to five to 10 people who've already done it, who've made all the mistakes. Then you make your informed decision. Oh, I'm going to go into this knowing what everybody else screwed up. But then you at least know that it's going to be hard. But I think it's, again, it's informed choices. And then uh, the testing will tell you if it's possible or not. Again, that's the, the uh, art part of having that vision in what direction you go. And then the science part is doing it with manageable risk. Yeah, I love that. And I like speaking to people is golden. Um, and also listening to podcasts where the founders talk yep. about yes. how they've grown. Like, so if you're looking to, yep. you know, enter yep. into a space or yep. something like yep. that, they a lot of the time founders will yep. tell you that. And that's great. But I th so I like the analogy with medicine. Imagine if your heart surgeon just listened to podcasts of other heart surgeons. <laughs> You'd freak out, right? <laughs> now, do yeah. surgeons actually have communities where they share their practices? Oh, for sure. Right? But what we're missing, I think, in the in particular kind of startup and entrepreneurial space is what uh, surgeons go through until they become a surgeon. And that is like hardcore schooling. Right? They, go, they really learn the profession. They snip it around on dead bodies before they become surgeons. And that's usually in any kind of applied profession. That's what you have. You have it in finance and accounting, et cetera. That's the part I think we're still missing a little bit. It's uh, too much. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think you need that as well. It's too much based on anecdotes, right? These accelerators, they bring in a lot of other founders who tell the stories. Stories are not enough. Again, imagine your heart surgeon coming in with uh, hearing a lot of stories. You'd freak out. 
So we need both. We need the community of practice. We need to share what others have done, but you really need to learn the tools and the anatomy and the physiology that will make a huge difference. And that's what we're trying to do. We're more on the plumbing side of, of strategy and innovation. We try to provide the tools that give you the anatomy and physiology of the business. And that's very important. And then, you know, podcasts and uh, communities of practice. And so like yourself, you have one EO enterprise organization with 14,000 founders around the world. That is absolutely essential, but that does not replace the tools and processes and, uh, you know, rigor um, that should come with it as well. We have it in management, but we don't necessarily have the same rigor in entrepreneurship. It's coming. It's changing. It's changing actually very fast. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so look, we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, so look, this has been a great conversation. I, I, I really, really enjoy the idea of building a sustainable business model for the long term or building a company that um, last the test of time, you know, like how can you build a company that can survive and thrive without you? So I'm always thinking, and I really like the idea of drawing inspiration from other companies, their business model in different yep. industries to you. Yep. So um, look, where can people find out more about your latest book and your work? So just go to strategizer.com and, and, and go look at the Invincible Company. The reason why I'm pointing you to the website is you can get 100 pages for free. We've always had this freemium model, right, where you can get um, a quarter of the book for free. You can get the tools or you can just Google the Invincible Company and you'll get that. And you know, I believe there's no there's no as you said, there's no one thing that's right. And even for the sustainable business models, if you're a founder who likes building and flipping, you know, building and selling, that's okay as well, right? But it's a choice. And so you need to know if you're a founder who wants to build for the long term, you want to create almost like a legacy, something that sustains, or you want to build to sell it, you know, maybe for the money, but maybe just for the fun of starting something and then, you know, getting rid of it as fast as you can. I know founders who do that. So and for me, the big thing is always there is no one way to do things. You need to figure out the right way that works for you as an entrepreneur, as a business person. And that's why, you know, listening to podcasts like yours and reading books is a great way to actually figure those things out. But there's no one truth, right? There, everybody needs to find their own path. I think that's really, really important. Sounds kind of trivial and cheesy, but I don't think enough people spend time on asking themselves, what do you really want, right? What do you really want? And then design your life around that. By the way, a friend of mine, Aisha Birsel, she wrote a book called Design the Life You Love. I think that should be a prerequisite for uh, for uh, founders to before they start. Yeah, I agree. Love it. Well, look, I'll let you go, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. This is a fantastic conversation and interview. And, uh, yeah, we can wrap there. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the future work and good luck to all the entrepreneurs out there. Thank you so much. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. 
These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.